Sometimes I think we should uh, change the service so that you don't have the special music just before the sermon. It's generally so moving as that was, and then I feel so inadequate to get up and speak with just the spoken word when the singing word is so emotionally inspiring and so powerful. But, uh, boy, I do appreciate that, though, Pam. That was beautiful. Just the content of it made me think of the Song of Songs where the body of Christ and the bride of Christ are described in almost embarrassing detail, but certainly very, very beautiful in the description there that apparently Solomon wrote. And that's the kind of body we want to become. Well, while I'm talking here and uh, emotionalizing, if you'll be turning to Hezekiah 3.19... I thought after Ephesians 19, maybe (laughs) I could catch a few. (laughs) You see, that one is so old that it's time to recycle. But let's then go to one of the shortest fellows in the Bible, Nehemiah, and uh, we will discuss that one. He may have, well, I don't know, you look at his personality in this book, and uh, he might not have been very big, because he certainly was fiery, but he was taller than at least Bildad the shoe height. That one's fairly recent, I think. It, it gets circulated fairly often. But I just wanted to let you know by some of these corny things that I do actually have a background in the Church of God. <laughs> Some of those things we heard in college, and that's been decades ago. But we did cover trumpets and trumpets and atonement, the book of Ezra. And Nehemiah is so closely associated with it, I thought that here at the feast it might be good to go ahead and address this book and what it has to say, because we are addressing the latter temple and what God is going to pull together as a remnant of his people, Uh, This has been a topic of a lot of sermons and a lot of our talk in the last uh, four and a half years especially, Uh, and coming to understand what God is going to do with this mess that we have today called the former Church of God, because there isn't a whole lot left, but he does have in mind to do something with it, and we've had uh, some thoughts along those lines already in the sermonettes, which I think are very good and tie very well together, Uh, we are here anticipating that God is beginning to do that, even as the rest of the church is falling apart. Out of that, I know God is going to begin to draw a remnant together, and maybe we are a part of that. I certainly hope so. I I think that that is the case. I, I won't be willy-nilly about it, I think it is the case, because you are people who have responded to that information, and it is part of what you want to do, and you want to be a part of it, and I think from what I'm hearing and seeing, that you are working hard at preparing yourselves as living stones, and that God will use those who do prepare themselves. I mean, he is going to choose out of the many who were called, those who are prepared and ready. So, We cannot go wrong 
by getting as polished and as prepared and as shaped like Christ as we possibly can be. If we do that, then we up the percentages of being chosen a great deal. And that's why we're focusing on that, on the righteousness and the holiness of God in Christ in our lives, is so that we can be a part of what Bill was just telling us, the bride of Christ and the new Jerusalem. So I think we all have that in the forefront of our minds, and Nehemiah continues that with uh, building the wall of Jerusalem. And there are many lessons that we can draw from this, because the type is certainly there of today, because Haggai and Zechariah were drawn from that and were made as specific prophecies, as I covered in an earlier sermon, uh, about the temple that will be built now. So in the book of Nehemiah, understand that they were coming out of the captivity of Babylon. Zerubbabel and Joshua and others had come out sometime earlier and had built the temple. And Ezra came later, as did Nehemiah, and Nehemiah took it as a specific job that he was doing of building the wall of Jerusalem back because it had been torn down and was defenseless and uh, much as the church is today. The wall of Worldwide Church of God has been torn down. The wolves have come in. The foxes have come in. Foxes being Edomites in type in the Old Testament. And have torn down the city. So there isn't much left, and God is the one that sick them in there to do the job. So it is, it is at his behest and his direction that the church has been torn down. But one of the things that I want to really emphasize today as we go through here is the emotion of the people and the emotion of the leaders and what had to be done and how they went about doing the job that had to be done. It is very instructive for us today who have been asleep, and we've already heard, awake, awake, and it's said three times there in the context of Isaiah 51 and 52. Wake up! Wake up! Maybe I'll use that line a little later in a sermon when your lunch kicks in more. It... <coughs> but understand that we are in the same position, having been dwelling in, and in the captivity of, in a spiritual sense, Babylon all around us, this whole 70 years that the church has existed. I'd say 70 years. I don't know whether we're within two or three or four years of that 70 or whatever, but it's been approximately that, from 27 to 34, somewhere in that range. So we're near the time to come out, just as they were coming out of that captivity physically that they had been in, so what they experienced, how they reacted, what they did, is very instructive for us today. To follow that same type of pattern, um, and let's go into it then rather than just talking about it and see what happened. These are the words of Nehemiah, and we don't need to read the whole thing there in the background, but it's concerning Jerusalem, so it's concerning the church today. And they said to me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So the church today is basically without defense. It can be entered by almost anyone, any idea, any ideology, any wolf, 
anyone who wants to come in can come in and carry off what he wants to carry off. And false shepherds are doing that here, there, and everywhere. I hope I'm not one of them, and you better check me out carefully and be sure that what I'm saying is coming from this book. I don't want to give you false hope. I don't want to give you anything that could be a lie. I don't want to lead you astray. I'm reading to you what I find in here that it's telling me. But you need to read the book. You need to find out if what I'm saying is true or not true. Is there some real viable live hope here that we can attach to from the words of God himself? What did Herbert Armstrong tell us over and over again? Don't believe me, believe your Bible. And he often said, blow the dust off your Bible, which meant read it, in case you don't get the picture there. I know you do. I'm being a little sarcastic, but read the book. Because the walls are torn down, and it is a time of great danger. When the walls of a city are torn down, it's defenseless. And that's pretty much where we find ourselves today. And it came to pass, verse 4, when I heard these words, that I sat down and cried and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When he realized the real shape that Jerusalem was in, when he finally focused, he just sat down and cried. And I think we've all felt like that, and probably most of us at some point or another in the last years have cried some tears, real tears, over the condition of the church. There are still some, I guess, who are fat, dumb, and happy, and don't even realize the church is in trouble, because they think whatever organization they're in is Philadelphia, and the rest of those Laodiceans are in trouble, but we're okay. And to me, that's a false sense of security. When the wall is down, I'd better look around at my defenses. Do I have on the armor of God and the helmet of salvation and so on and so forth? Or am I as defenseless as everyone that I'm looking at saying, boy, those people are in trouble? We just simply have to take it personal. Repentance is not a group therapy session. It's something we have to purchase on our knees individually as Nehemiah did. Now, he led in a renaissance. He led in a renewal and a restitution of attitude and approach. But he had to start with himself. If he hadn't, people wouldn't have listened. They wouldn't have cared. So then he prayed and said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open. Remember what I said last night about a God has turned his face from us and we wanted to turn back and shine on us. That is the emotion that Nehemiah was feeling. He had felt that he had drifted enough from God that he was just praying to the ceiling. And you and I have experienced that at times. So he wanted God's attention riveted on his prayer. And he asked for that. I thought that was excellent this morning, that Christ was going to just pass on by. He was walking on water, and he's sitting there, and he's just strolling on past. He didn't even 
call over and say, you guys got an extra ore? That was their job to do. And he would have walked on by if they hadn't gotten his attention. Excellent. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. So he did take it personal. He did start at home with himself. And he cried out day and night. We dealt very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. Corruptly against him, I suppose, means, first of all, the first four. Idolatry is probably the most common sin, where we put any and everything ahead of God and especially ourselves and then against his people, which we do not pay enough attention to a lot of times as well. There are brothers, there are sisters. Am I my brother's keeper? I think it is strongly implied in there that, yes, he was his brother's keeper. And having murdered his brother, he would then be held accountable. You know the story of Cain and Abel. Remember, verse 8, I beseech you, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying... If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. I won't emphasize this unduly because we've gone over it many, many times in the prophecies. But scattering is a result of sin and at times as a result of righteousness. If you do what is right, you will also be divided from father, mother, brother, sister, and so on, as Christ said. But if you turn to me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven... Yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them to the place that I have chosen to set my name there. So no matter how far flung we might be, God says he knows where each and every one of us is, and if we repent and will follow his commandments, he will draw us together in the place that he has chosen. I'm going to do an interesting sidebar here just for you to think about. Uh, let's go back to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. He talks about the statutes and judgments here. And then in verse 5, he says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even to his habitation, shall you seek. And there you shall come. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and heave offerings and so on and so forth. Verse 7, And there you shall eat before the eternal your God and shall rejoice in all that you put your hand to, you and your households, wherein the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do after all the things that we do here this day, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. Ah, he says, you're doing as you please right now. But when I bring you into the land, I am going to set a particular place that I want you all to come to. For you are as not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God gives you. They were still wandering in the desert. They hadn't gone into the land yet. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the eternal your God gives you to inherit, 
And when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. There shall you bring all that I command you. Repeats that again. Verse 12, and you shall rejoice with your families and so on. Uh, with your maidservants and the Levite within your gates, for as much as he has no partner inheritance with you to take care of the Levite, take heed to yourself that you not burn offerings in every place that you see. Don't do this just wherever you desire or think is a good place to do it. Now, he didn't say which tribe, did he? He didn't say exactly where it was going to be, did he? He left it open. Interesting. Verse 14, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Why didn't he say Levi or Judah or Ephraim or whatever? It's in one of your tribes. Interesting. And then he talks about killing the animals and eating and so on. Verse 18, but you must eat them before the eternal your God in the place which the Lord your God shall choose. And then mentions again who and, and where. Verse 21, If the place which the eternal your God has chosen to put his name there be too far from you, then you shall kill of your herd and of your flock, which the eternal has given you, as I have commanded, and you shall eat in your gates whatsoever your soul desires. So he only allows two places to come for his feasts. In the place that he shall choose, in one of the tribes, and at home. Did you ever notice that before? We thought we could just go and place God's name anywhere we wanted to. I don't know about that. All right, with that background, now let's go to Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33. Now the context here is just as the day of, or just before the day of the Lord. We'll see that. Verse uh, three: At the noise of the tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of yourself, the nations were scattered. The peoples were scattered. Uh, and your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts shall he run upon them. The eternal is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. If we fear him and do what he says, that is a treasure to him. And it talks about the valiant ones crying without in verse 7, the ambassadors of peace weeping bitterly, the highways lay waste, or lie waste, the wayfaring man ceases. In other words, this isn't millennium yet, is it? You won't have that happening in the millennium. Verse 10, now will I rise, says the eternal. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. Um, there's a similar reference in Zechariah 2. Same language. And I think talking about the same period of time. Uh, here he says at the end of chapter 2, be silent, O all flesh, before the eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's ready to go to work. 
That's quoted as well in Psalm 119, 126. I will not turn there. Psalm 119, 126, where it says, It is time for you to work, O Lord, for they have voided your law. And that's exactly where we are in the church today. The law has been voided by most and ignored by many and not kept in its full spirit and intent by hardly any. And that's the time when Christ says, I'm going to get up and go to work. He's going to shake the heavens and shake the earth. And that's what he talks about then. Now verse 14, the sinners in Zion, Zion being again a type of the church, are afraid. So this isn't yet the millennium when Zion has been established in Jerusalem and Christ is there ruling on his throne and the 144,000 are ruling with him. Otherwise there would be no sinners in Zion and no one would be afraid. Well, this is speaking of a time before that. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Remember Christ says there in Zechariah, the first part of chapter 2, that he is going to, that Jerusalem will be builded back as a village without walls and that he would be a fire around it as a protection. Now, the new Jerusalem with Christ there on the Mount Zion is not going to be a city of villages. So he's talking in that context about the rebuilding of the latter temple when it still needs protection around it. Okay? Then he says, who will dwell among the everlasting burnings that are going to be established there, the fire of Christ's power. He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he that despises the gain of oppressions, that shakes his hands from holding of bribes, that stops his ears from hearing of blood and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. Your eyes shall see the king in his beauty. There are quite a few scriptures that indicate that Christ may be in the place of safety. I don't have time to go into all that, but I could show you probably 15 or 20 of them that uh, indicate he may very well be there. Now, he may be sitting on a rock somewhere. I don't know whether he'll be visible, but I think that he will be a fire and a wall of fire around, and as Isaiah 4 says, a covert in the day from the, time, from the heat, and at night, uh, protection as well. So you'll see him, the king and his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off in the King James, but my margin says a land of far distances, a land of great distance. I don't think that describes Zion in Jerusalem. In fact, the whole, whole holy land is probably no bigger than South Carolina if it were compacted and shaped like that. I don't know what the square miles are, but it's not very big. So it's not a, a land of great distances. Your heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver or the weigher? Where is he that counted the towers? You shall not see a fierce people, a people of a deeper speech than you can perceive. What he's talking about here, I think, is the place of safety. That when the Germans come in and the UN comes in or whatever configuration it finally takes, we were not going to have to listen to peoples of a foreign language telling us what to do because God will have us safely in the arms of Christ wherever that place might be. 
Now notice verse 20. Look upon Zion. Zion, uh, according to Strong's, means a permanent capital, a mountain of Jerusalem. Now, you shall look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. What does solemnities mean? I looked up the Hebrew word here. Guess what it is? Most of you studied this word recently in terms of the calendar. Because the word is moed. Look upon the city of your feasts, the set feasts of the eternal. I think that's interesting because he says back there he will set one place. And you're all to come there, whatever tribe it be in. Now, when it was in Jerusalem, Zion, and they all went in to Jerusalem to keep the feasts, that was the place that God had set. And I don't, let's say, I guess you would have to say that was in Judah, Levi, Judah, Benjamin, that area. But he never said which tribe it would be in specifically. And I wonder if we don't have an end-time type in a different place for the time being until Jerusalem is reset in her place in her own place, as Zechariah says. But there might be a different place that God has set his name. And it is the place where we're to keep the moeds of God, his solemnities. wonder where that place might be. Maybe I shouldn't comment further, just let you think on that as we sing a song of Zion now. I have a feeling, it may be right here, that we're following the pattern of Ezra and Nehemiah and that God wants us to keep the feast here as the city of his solemnities. Now, it's not in Judah or Levi anymore in that sense, if it is a type, I don't think it's the specific place where Christ is coming back. Don't get me wrong. That will be over there. But Mount Zion today, we can't go to. It's not much of a city. I was just there in June. And if you want to worship there, you're going to have to go to Mass or go on Friday and crawl around on your knees. Maybe there's a Methodist church there too. I don't know. But there's not much on Mount Zion except a graveyard and some pagan temples. And certainly no place to meet. Not only that, it's kind of busy over there right now if you've been watching the news. I don't think God wants us to go there. And it's going to get even busier as time goes on. So that was the place that he has set. But now if he sets one place in the tribes and he names it Zion, the city of our solemnities, that to me narrows it down considerably. Now there are several Zions in the United States. We might pick a different one. But if you study this out a little more, you'll find out it needs to be mountains and wilderness and desert and a land of far distances. Some of you are asking, why did we have the feast here? Somebody asked me last night, how did you find this place? <laughs> well, we'll see. I don't know. That's just something I'm throwing out there for you to think about and think about as you study different scriptures um, <laughs> it may not have anything in particular to do with it at all. I don't know that for sure one way or another. But I think that this is very interesting in the light of Deuteronomy 12, 
plus what he says here about keeping God's moeds at the city of Zion. And if it is not what I'm uh, alleging here in one sense, then it's still a very nice place to keep the feast. And it has a lot of God's natural beauty around it, and uh, I think it's a wonderful place to do, and we're completely cut off basically from the world, and uh, it's the kind of place I've been looking for. So we'll leave that at that for what it's worth, and uh, something to think about, ponder, and at least I don't feel bad now having read that and looked up the definition of the Hebrew word and figured out what it was talking about in that sense, and I happen to be here in a place named that. That does feel kind of good, put it that way. Some people thought I was cracked before. Wait till they hear this. I don't know. I'm just reading what I see. <laughs> and and uh, it may or may not have any great significance. I just don't know. But time will tell. But if it is indeed uh, the place that God chose for us to be, then we're sort of fitting the pattern here again, I think. Uh, the Nehemiah said, go to the place or gather them to the place that you have chosen to set your name there. As you explore this valley, you look around at how much is named after God in the Bible. You'll be amazed. <coughs> now, I know the Methodists and the Mormons named it, but God spoke through Balaam's ass, too. <laughs> you know, And when Herbert Armstrong needed a dime... He said he sent the devil to deliver it. <laughs> well, it wasn't a little boy or something. I think that was the story about some kid or something. I forget now. They, they needed a dime for milk for the baby anyway. And uh, God sent it, but the devil delivered it. I, I think I remember him saying that. I don't know whether it was that context or not. But if God has a way of setting his name somewhere, I haven't found any place in the United States that has more of it. Put it that way. All right, verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by, the great, by your great power and your strong hand. So as per Haggai, God is going to draw a remnant together himself in the place where he chooses. O Lord, I beseech you, let now your ear be attentive. Again, he says, are you listening? He addresses him in the same prayer again. Please hear what I'm saying. to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and prosper. I pray you, your servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for he was the king's cupbearer. Now, he was apparently conceiving an idea in his mind as he prayed to God, and he wanted grace and favor of the king that he was working under still in Babylon. And he was the king's cupbearer. Now, after this prayer, and after he had realized what was going on in Jerusalem, i.e. the church, and he had prayed and wept and fasted, he went back in before the king. Now, when you're before the king, you're supposed to be smiling and happy all the time because kings don't want to see anybody uh, downtrodden or with their face turned down. Where they like, you know, kings like happy faces in their presence. You know, they can be cutting someone's head off, but they want happy faces all around them. That's just the way kings are. 
He said, I had not before time been sad in the king's presence, end of verse 1 of chapter 2. Then the king said to me, Why is your countenance sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. The king's going to find out my secret. And said to the king, Let the king live forever. That's what you always say to a king right away. Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lies waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? How can we really be happy and joyous when that which we were part of and expected to go to a place of safety on into the kingdom of God with suddenly began to come apart? It was hard. It was tough. It was confusing and frustrating. and still is to some degree, but I think we see a glimmer of hope now in these scriptures. Said to the king, let the king live forever. Oh, we read that. Then the king said to me, for what do you make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said, you know, under his breath, God help me. <laughs> We've all been there, haven't we? And I said to the king, verse 5, if it please the king, and if your servant have found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. So he was volunteering. He had a plan. He wanted to go back and build. Now, who was Nehemiah? He was no prophet. He was no Moses. He was a Jew working for the king, and he said, I see a problem here. I need to take care of it. Now, isn't that what I was telling you beforehand? If you see something that needs done around here, do it. We see a church torn apart. Something needs to be done about it. We saw in Ezra that God is looking for volunteers. And he will stir up people to come and build the latter temple. Those who volunteer, who, who offer themselves as sacrifices on a daily basis to get the job done. I have pondered the question over the last few years. Well, Haggai says, leave your house and go build the temple. And I think, what do I do? I mean, how do, how do you go about this? What, what do you do? And it struck me recently that the Old Testament gives us an awful lot of instruction and type and tells us prophetically what will occur. And throughout here are sprinkled Micah 6.8 telling us what we need to do, uh, be righteous, be holy, and so on. But the real instruction for building the temple is the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us it needs to be done, that the old will be torn down and it will have to be rebuilt. But the whole New Testament is a chronicle of Christ telling the disciples who were shortly then going to build a church under him how to go about it. And the epistles of Paul and the pastoral epistles give instruction on how a church should be built how it should be run, how it should be operated, how it should be administered. So we're not going to stay in the Old Testament forever. Back here, we find out what needs to be done. We see hope for the future. Then when it comes time to really get building it, we look for instruction from Jesus Christ himself, the chief builder and the chief cornerstone, and from the apostles themselves who administered the early New Testament church. And the, former, the latter temple has to be built on the same pattern as the early New Testament church. Governmentally, 
brother to brother, all the principles that are there in the Sermon on the Mount and thereafter throughout the whole New Testament are how it needs to be built. So we've been focusing a lot on the Old Testament, but that isn't the end of the story. It's only the blueprint of what needs to be done and how it will be done and to some degree who will do it and a call for volunteers who are ready to accept the challenge, who are ready to commit themselves, and this is a society that is not ready to be committed to much of anything. Maybe the crazy house, but not committed to projects. Commitment to marriage, commitment to anything is pretty weak these days. So God is looking for people who will commit themselves totally to building his temple, and then he gives us the instruction in the New Testament as to how to go about it. But for today, let's continue on here. I said to the king, I want to go to Judah and build this back up. All right, let's go on down to verse 11. Well, verse 10, he had enemies, the Horonite and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, Moab and Ammon, the Arabs were against this. They didn't want Jerusalem built back under the aegis of the Jews. If you've read your news here just the last couple, three days, we've got the same problem going on. We don't want the Jews in control of the Holy Mount or Jerusalem. Uh, it's our place. Well, I don't think so. It says down here that it's not. A little later, I think, we'll probably come to it. But I read verse 10 to show that it grieved them exceedingly that there was a man come to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So the Arabs immediately took uh, exception to this, and those who build God's temple will have those who take exception, and there will be enemies. I guarantee it based on Scripture right here, and many, many other Scriptures for that matter. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I rose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. So he laid his plan very carefully. He rode out by the different gates of the city that used to be there at least by night and looked it over, went to the king's pool and the fountain and so on. <clears throat> Verse 16, And the rulers knew not where I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. So he laid the plan carefully, quietly, and began to make up his mind how to go about this job before he ever told anybody he was going to do it. Then, said I to them, once he figured out where he was headed, he said to them, You see the distress that we are in, and how Jerusalem lies waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come! Let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. So Nehemiah surveyed the situation, got a plan in mind, realized what needed to be done. Then he told the people, Let's get to work. But then when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, the Arabian, and so on, heard us, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, 
What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? In other words, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, followed by the Medes and Persians, well, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, but then the Medes and Persians ruled over it, and they thought, they, they said, what are you going to do? You, you don't have authority to do this. You're going against the will of the king and the empire. Let me ask you a question. Does it matter? Who cares? Does it matter who is against? Does it matter that the whole world is deceived and that the whole world is against the real people of God? Does it matter that the government might not like what God's people do? Go back and review Egypt and Pharaoh. Does it matter if everyone is against and that even the leader is a fugitive in that sense? As speaking of Moses, come back from a foreign land where he had been in hiding for murder? Will you rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said to them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Eat that, Palestinians. <laughs> Eat that, world. The spiritual Jew is the only one who has right or part with what God is doing today. Not any who say they are Jews, who say they are part of the church and converted as per Revelation 3, but only those who are converted and convicted to the heart. No hypocrite. There will be those who fear in Zion because they know that their hearts are not right and that they're hypocrites as they sit in God's church. They have no partner parcel, and God says he will purge the rebels out. Then Eliashab, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. I won't go through all this because it just tells about the different groups that built it on different parts of the wall. It was all divided up so that they, you, you had it, a different crew working on each part of the wall and each a different crew on the gates later on. They divided the work up. The leaders worked, the people worked, just like Haggai says. They worked together to put this thing the way it should be. Okay, let's see. Then Sanballat heard in chapter 4, and the army of Samaria said, What do these feeble Jews, who are these weak little people, trying to do something that they say is important? Building the temple of God is the most important thing there is on earth to be done today. And amazingly, you and I can be a part of that. What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? When they burned the city, the stones got blackened. They got piled in heaps. Jerusalem was in heaps, it says. And now they were going to dig through and get those stones out and clean them up and put them back in the wall. We look at the church today and it's a pile of rubbish burned with fire, uh, metaphorically speaking. And the stones aren't much and they're hard to find in all the rubble. But God can find them and he can put them back together. And his people can come together and build that temple. This, this is exciting. 
To me, it's just the most exciting thing we could be a part of. Number one, it's the God of heaven who's doing it. Number two, he has a chosen particular purchased people of lively stones and a spiritual royal priesthood to put together to do it. And why he chose us, the weak and the base, is amazing. These feeble Jews, us feeble ones. But we can be a part. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. They, they can't do anything. They can't build anything that will last. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. But there's no place, he doesn't say, we can ask for him to wreak that vengeance. In fact, there are many places where God's people ask God to take vengeance. The easiest thing would be go back to Psalms and read some of the things David said about his enemies, ask God to do to them. It's not that we would say, God, please destroy all these folks, I don't like them. They don't like me, so therefore get rid of them. But David had a job to do in his life. And we have a job to do to get the temple of God put back together in whatever part of the wall we build upon. And maybe we're only, this little group might only be building one little section of the wall, just like there were different groups building the different parts of the wall. So I'm not trying to say we're exclusivist here, please. But I'm saying that we have the opportunity, if we will volunteer and we will be converted and we will go, God will use us to help build the wall. And maybe we can build a part of it or one of the gates or whatever. But the point here is on the vengeance thing, is we have a job to do. So God, please take vengeance on anyone who would prevent us doing the job you have to get done. So it's not a personal vengeance we would ask. It's God, remove the enemy so we can do the work you gave us to do. That's the point. Verse 6, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. They were ready to be committed. They had a ready mind, as Paul says, to work. This is something you have to work at. I don't know whether any of you, well, some of you have done some building, I'm sure. And I've done a lot of building with used materials. Old barn lumber, old bricks, various things of that nature. And my dad always had important things to do in the building when I was younger. And if there were any, any old mortar that needed chipped off the bricks, do you think he did it? <laughs> that was this boy. And that's hard, hot work. Taking nails out of boards that have been used is hard, hot work. And I've done an awful lot of it. It's dirty because of the dust and the grime and the smoke on some of the boards. But you have to be of a mind to work. And they were using used material. And some of us have been recycled three, four, five, six times now. <laughs> And we're pretty dusty and pretty smoky and pretty dirty and got a lot of old mortar and untempered mortar on us that has to be scraped off. So it takes work, and you have to be willing to work. 
because you have a job in mind. And that's what artistry is, isn't it? Taking something that is either blah or bland or nothing or misfigured and turning it into something beautiful. That's what an artist does. And we can be artists here in the building of polished, beautiful stones. Gemstones for God. Not just bricks. Gemstones, sapphires and rubies and diamonds and things like that God wants us made into. But it takes a lot of polishing and cutting and preparing. So you have to have a mind to work. Let's see, end of verse 7. The breaches began to be stopped. Then they were very angry, the enemies, see? They began to shore up and stop the breaches in the wall, the holes. And that's what has to be done with God's church. Shore up the walls. Make it a defensible city again. And conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God and set a watch against them that day and night because of them. So we have to be aware of the enemies, and we have to keep on the whole armor of God on a spiritual level, as Paul explained. So you go to the New Testament and see how to do this. You put on the whole armor of God. We're not going to strap on swords and run out here and try to protect as we build a spiritual organization. But we do need the armor of God. The New Testament shows us that. Verse 11, our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. Satan is very uh, sly, very subtle, and he has ways of working his way in and destroying before you even know he's there. The devices of Satan. We're not to be ignorant of them, Paul says. Verse 14, And I looked and rose up and said to the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not you afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Not every man for himself, but we're all brothers and sisters here. And this is a house we're building together. And we have to be concerned one for another. To take care of one another. Exhorting one another. Encouraging one another. Helping one another. Okay, let's see. Verse 19, And I said to the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one from another. Sounds kind of like us today. Church people are scattered all over the place, and the rocks and the stones that need to be used to build a temple are here, there, and everywhere. And it's very difficult to put something together when you are apart. Roy and I have been trying to put together a tape list, <coughs> and we have to do everything by email or telephone. Now, if we were next door to each other or in the same town, we could get over and have planning sessions a lot easier, couldn't we? But we're separated a great deal. Well, we're getting the job done, or he is, basically. But it's harder when you're separated. I hope God gets us all together one of these days. In what place, therefore, you hear the sound of the trumpet, resort you there to us, for our God shall fight for us. In other words, if you hear there's trouble there, there's trouble there, we all hasten together to take care of that. We hear there's someone sick over here, we all pray, we all help, we all call, we all send cards, we all do everything we can to help that sick one so that that one can be preserved and taken care of. So if you hear a trumpet, you know, uh, be ready to go to where that trumpet sound is to help in any way you can. And they worked, verse 21, 
as we say today, from dawn to dusk, from can see to can't see, we called it in Texas. From the rising of the morning till the stars appeared, they worked at this. So kind of day and night, right? This is a 24-hour job we have of getting ourselves prepared. Likewise, at the same time, said I to the people, let everyone with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. Let's all stay right here. Don't uh, go running off 10 miles every night to a house out in the country somewhere. The job is here. Let's work at the job. Let's stay on the job, in other words, so that we can get this done, not spend all of our time commuting. And they didn't even take off their clothes except for washing. Now, you talk about ready to work. They, this wasn't a union job. They were all saying, hey, well, that's quitting time. When's chow? When's Miller time? It wasn't that mentality. They wanted this done. And when you want something done that hard that you don't even take off your clothes except to wash them occasionally, that means you are into it. I don't know how long it would take me not to get, in, to get to the place I didn't get to take a shower every day. <laughs> uh, that, that would be hard. And you would hope there was lots of space on the wall so you didn't have to work too close together. I guess. And they were under great duress from the Jews who had gone back earlier. You see, the Jews who had gone back under Zerubbabel and Joshua then had lapsed into Laodiceanism, you might say. And when these new Jews came, all ready to do something, they charged interest. They wouldn't uh, sell them houses except they were mortgaged. They had all kinds of problems, and they were taking everything they had away from them and hindering their own brethren. It says in verse 8, Will you even sell your own brethren, or shall they be sold to us? Nehemiah said, Quit charging these people usury. Drop the mortgages. We've got a job to do here. In other words, quit looking out for yourselves and get busy doing what God wants done. Isn't that what Haggai tells us? Didn't you have a bag with holes for your wages and it fell through? Leave your panel houses. Build the church of God. That's the goal and the purpose. Read Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi 1 if you don't think people are willing to sell the brethren and abuse and misuse the brethren. And that's talking about the ministry, basically. Okay, let's move on. Uh, verse 16 of chapter 5. Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered there to, do, uh, there to the work. So they even said... <clears throat> we just came from Babylon, we're resettling in Jerusalem, but until this wall is finished, we're not even going to build land, buy land, we're not going to build houses, we're not going to do anything except what God has put before us. Front and center is the job God has to be done. Now chapter 6, let's see. Boy, look at it. My watch must have got fast or something. Were we that close to being through? I know you ate a big lunch and you 
just as soon probably, but uh, I, uh, I'm down to 18 minutes and I've got, what, five, six, seven chapters to go here. <clears throat> anyway, that shook me up. Where was I? Let's go to chapter 6 and see how far we get. We could do this tomorrow. We're going to be here for several days, but I wanted to finish this up and go on to some other things. Maybe we can do it anyway. There's parts in here. It's just genealogy. Anyway, chapter 6, <clears throat> there was no breach left therein, though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. Uh, and here came more enemies. I sent messengers to them saying, <coughs> who had asked them to have a meeting let's talk about what you're doing and trying to get it shut down. You know, let's, let's go to have a peace accord like the Jews and the Palestinians make a sham of today. Let's go talk about Nobody's going to give in. We all know that. Those people have hated each other for thousands of years. They both claim it as their historical right to have Jerusalem. Bill Clinton thinks he's going to go in there and make peace. He better get his Nobel Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize for doing something else. He picked an awfully big project there. Can't be done. Well, maybe they'll have a little covenant of peace for a little while, but I'll guarantee you it won't last long. Uh, there, there's those Palestinians plan to wipe the Jews out, and that's what they were facing here and building back the wall of Jerusalem. Let's see, <coughs> verse seven. Of chapter 6, and you have also appointed prophets to preach of you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. What they're saying is here, you really intend to be the king. You really intend to take over. You're planning on getting this wall built back, and then you're going to be start your own empire there. Verse 8, Nehemiah speaking, Then I sent to him, saying, There are no such things done as you say but you feign them out of your own heart. Our intentions, our motivations are not what you think they are. Now consider rumors you might hear about you and me and others as we try to get back to the point where God can use us to help build the wall of his church back. And they'll think that we're trying to do our own thing. They'll think that we have ulterior motives. It's no such thing. All I'm here to do, brethren, is to get me ready as a polished stone and to do what I can to help you get yourself ready. That's the only purpose. Whoever God chooses to do, the leadership of Nehemiah, Ezra, Joshua, Zerubbabel, whoever, that's up to him. All we've got to do is get ourselves ready to be a part of it and leave the rest of that up to him. It really doesn't matter. I don't care who the leaders are. I really don't. I just want to be part of it. I want to be part of the 144,000. I want to be in the kingdom of God. I want to be in the eternal Zion in Jerusalem. Whether this valley means anything to us for the moment is neither here nor there in that sense. The goal is out here. The goal now is to get ourselves ready for whatever God is doing. And if we of like mind can come together and help one another, then that's wonderful because we all need help. We need each other. We need encouragement. We need love. We need um, exhorting. We need a lot of things to help us keep focused so that we see no evil and hear no evil as we read. It's easier to watch a television than it is to study. 
it's easier to watch sports or play sports than it is to pray. It's easy to get distracted on other things, which may not in some cases be sin of themselves, but that are simply a distraction from what you need to be doing. So he said, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands in verse 9. And then they told him, well, let's go in the house of God and meet in the temple, and you can take hold of the ark, and no harm will come you. And he said, I'm not going to take that kind of artificial uh, protection. I will not go in. Should, should a man such as I flee, I'm in verse 11. And lo, I perceive that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me. This Elijah was quite a character. I mean, not Elijah. Where did I get that? This Nehemiah was quite a character. Why should I go in the temple and, and grab the horns of the altar and try to be protected? God can protect me right here. I'm not afraid of you guys. Well, you see some of the things he does a little later. You've already read the book, you know, but we'll go there anyway. Because I think you need to understand the emotion of these people and how dedicated they were to the job at hand and how dedicated the leadership became to what needed to be done. Verse 13, Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and sin, and that they might have a matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. And then he, uh, <coughs> he asked God to think upon these people uh, that it would put him in fear. So the wall was finished and took them 50 day, two days to do it. Now that is incredible when you think about it. I was just there in June. and Jerusalem, Old Jerusalem is not that big a city. I mean, you can walk across it in probably, oh, I don't know, the Arabs are out of the way 20, 25 minutes. Uh, but they are very crowded little streets. But that wall is, that is there now, it was built in 1600 by a Muslim. But that wall is probably six feet thick that's there now. And it's probably, I would guess it's probably no more than a mile square. Maybe a mile and a half, two miles. I don't know. Somebody that knows history might have an idea of, of the exact size. But it's not that big. But to finish it in 52 days, a wall that's many, many feet high and that thick and that long, wow. Those people had a mind to work. How long will it take to build God's latter temple? I don't know. Uh, then the enemies were cast down in their own eyes in verse 16, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. They fought it, and they fought it, and they fought it, and it happened anyway. People will fight and fight and fight whatever God does with his church here at the end. But you know what? It's going to get done anyway. God says, be of good courage. Fear not. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. And when the Lord of hosts and his angels are with you, nothing can stop you. It will be done. And then those who had been enemies cast their eyes down. What did God say? Was it Elijah? Where did, how did I get Elijah on my mind? Was it Ezekiel? He told, uh, now I can't remember what I was going to say. See what I mean? I need help. Um, well, I lost it. Maybe it'll come back in a minute. I hate it when that happens. It seems to be increasing, too. Uh, 
chapter 7, verse 3, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open till the sun be hot, and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone on his watch, and everyone to be over against his house. So uh, with a physical city, he didn't want the gates open till the sun was hot. He didn't want them opened at dawn or while it was still half dark, uh, lest enemies come in. And we have to be very, very careful as a church of God. that we're sure and careful who we let into our hearts and minds, who we let into a congregation, because enemies tend to come. Verse 4, Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. So that shows you they got the wall built, the temple was built, but there weren't many houses and very few people. I think that's going to be true of God's end-time temple as well. It's not going to be but a remnant, not great and large. And my God put into my heart to gather together the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at the first. So here these people came, they worked, and there were other people in the city then that probably kept coming in. And he wanted to know who should be here and who should not be here. That was done in Ezra's day, you remember, in dividing them out. And it took them three months to figure it out in the rain, who should be and who should not be, and who should be married to who and who should not be. And whether they should have their kids with them or whether those kids and the wives ought to be put away because they weren't part of Israel. So Nehemiah approaches the same problem. He wanted to be sure that everyone who was there belonged there. Nobody is going to get into the kingdom of God who does not belong there. No one is going to take it except through Jesus Christ. He's the final word. He is the word and the final word. And whoever is a part of his bride is going to have his absolute personal seal of approval. They're sealed, remember? When a king seals something, he did it with his own seal. You can't sneak in by some other way. You can't get past Christ. A hypocrite, a sinner, is in trouble. Now, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, so don't get too discouraged by that. But those who are willing to grow and overcome, the overcomers will enter into the kingdom of God, not those who thought it would be a good idea if they ever got around to it. Chapter 8, And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Here comes trumpets again. Interesting. And he read, therefore, before the street that was before the water gate from the morning till midday. Well, I don't know. If I went over time a little bit, it wouldn't, wouldn't matter, would it? And those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood. You know, I've had people in the last few years say, well, a minister shouldn't stand up on a stage or get above the people at all. I mean, he's trying to put himself above us. Did they ever read Nehemiah? He stood on a pulpit of wood because there were a lot of people that needed to see him. Needed to be able to hear and see. It isn't so you can be taller than the people or look down upon those unwashed peasants. It's just so you can be seen and heard. It helps. You know, if you're going to talk and you're going to be there, why not be heard? And Ezra, verse 6, Bless the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. 
amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They prayed at the beginning of the service. And then I even heard of theory recently that you weren't supposed to expound anything from the Bible or talk about it or give the, the meaning. You're just supposed to read it. Well, wait a minute. The Levites, and it names a bunch of them, caused the people, in the verse 7, to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. In other words, they expounded it. We get these crazy, harebrained ideas coming up from all over the place these days. And if you just read the book, it says this is the way it was done, and apparently God approved it. And Nehemiah, which is the Tirshather, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, mourn not nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Was this an emotional thing? This was exciting to them. They'd been in captivity all those years. They'd been in Babylon. They got to go back to Jerusalem. They got to do something important. They got to return to God and His ways. And they wept unashamedly and unabashedly in front of one another. Are we jaded or what sometimes? Have we lost a lot of natural emotion that we still should have and we become cynical and sarcastic and turned off and tuned out and lackadaisical and Laodicean and have lost a lot of the true emotion that God would have us have? Although I had a gal last night that was saying something to me and she was here and she was so happy to be here and she was, was kind of crying and I told her to shut up she's going to have me blubbering because my eyes began to water too. We've got to get back to that. I don't mean that we ought to walk around weeping all the time. There's a, there's a rock up here in Zion that weeps all the time. It, the water runs out of the sandstone. They call it the, the weeping rock. I thought of Christ Jesus wept. The rock wept. Interesting. But uh, I don't think Christ went around all the time like this by any means. Certainly not when he went into the temple and saw the money changers. I don't think he wept. He was a tiger in there. Talk about some emotion. He kicked the tables over and jerked them up in their laps and dumped their stuff in their laps and kicked their chairs back and told them to get out of there. You know what? They got up and gat. I can just see them and they're scrambling all over the ground trying to grab their money. And at the same time, here comes his foot, and they're trying to stay ahead of the foot and pick up money at the same time as they go. Well, there was a man who was ferocious, but a man who could also weep. He had a wide range of emotions which he could control properly and use properly and did the right thing at the right time. Some of us whimper and whine and weep out of cowardice when we ought to be bold and brave, and then we're a bull in a china shop when we ought to have been weeping somewhere. You've got to get the thing right, see? And Christ could do that. But this is where we learn wisdom. Do you answer a fool according to his folly, or do you not answer a fool according to his folly? depends on which fool it is and what the conditions are. But you have to use wisdom to know which. 
Uh, let's see. Chapter 9. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. We can come together. We need to separate ourselves from this world. We need to have our minds focused on what God wants done. And we need to be willing to tell each other, man, you need to help me with this. Pray for me for this. I'm weak here. Give me strength. I don't think we all need to have a confessional booth and get up here and tell about everything we've ever done. Uh, that isn't necessary. It's covered under the blood of Christ. But we still need to be willing to talk about and get help from one another with the weaknesses we still have. If any of you find my memory laying around, please bring it. And then it talks about the enemies, and he, he, he prays a prayer here, which I'm not going to take the time to go through. Um, it's a good prayer, and you ought to read it. Maybe this would be a good time for you to read it here at this Feast of Tabernacles. But he rehearses all the things that God has done, including Egypt and Pharaoh and so on, and the cloud and the pillar by night and the pillar of fire, and the things that God had done for them. And we need to go back and rehearse some of the things that God did for us, even in God's church in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I can remember absolute miracles and signs and wonders that occurred within the worldwide church of God before we began to lose faith and began to lose the benefits of God. But it does me good sometimes to go back and realize some of the things that happened, some healings that I saw with my very own eyes. I mean immediate healings. Various things that occurred and what happened to us. And we lost that because we became weak and of little faith. And we need to regain it. We need to get back to that kind of faith and trust and belief and the eternal God of heaven, and those benefits and those blessings will return. He said it's contingent upon our faith. So if he's not healing, and he's not helping, and he's not answering, it's because we are of little faith. And it has to be built back. We have to come to have that strength and that trust in Almighty God. Now let's go on down to chapter 10, verse 28. And all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. You get knowledge by studying, by listening, by praying, especially by studying God's word. And you obey and you begin to have understanding then. Verse 30, and that we would not give our daughters to the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. Paul tells us that, administrating the New Testament church. Don't become equally, unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't marry outside the church. But what has the church done? Last 10, 20 years, an awful lot of that going on. And it brings sorrow and sadness and trouble in the long run. Are we going to ignore that particular verse because it doesn't fit with the lifestyle that we have in mind to do? And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. We made ordinances to charge ourselves a third part of a shekel for the house of God and so on, and it talks about all the things that they were going to take care of monetarily. Where is that in here? Maybe we're just not there yet. 
I guess we're not. Um, chapter 11, <clears throat> are we to stay scattered? Notice this. They cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem. Interesting, a remnant. Ten percent were to come and dwell in Jerusalem. The holy city and the other nine parts to dwell in other cities, and the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Here you have the volunteer uh, mentality again. Instead of casting lots, some said, I'll come live there. I'll volunteer to come be a part of Jerusalem, of the church. And the priests purified themselves and purified the people in chapter 12, verse 30. <clears throat> I wanted to get down to a particular point here. Did I skip over that somehow about what uh, Nehemiah said to those people? They came and were bringing stuff to sell to the people on the Sabbath. And he said, I will lay hands on you. And he says, I jerked the hair out of some of them and I pulled their beards out. Now, was there a man who was full of emotion and caring about God's people and what was going on? Was he going to let them continue in sin without telling them about it? Was he going to let the Gentiles prey on them on the Sabbath day without taking care of it? This is like Jesus Christ in the temple with the money changers. Somebody's probably found that. What am I quoting from? I guess I'm just not there yet. Just leave that one alone. I know, I'm not all there. <laughs> but brethren, I'm trying to get there, and I hope you are too. Well, let's see, verse 10 of 13, he said, And I perceived that the portion of the Levites had not been given them. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. He was going to get this thing straightened out. And then he saw some Jews in verse 15 treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses and wine and grapes and so on, doing business on the Sabbath. <clears throat> verse 17, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers us and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now if you will notice in Isaiah 58... In Ezekiel, Jeremiah, there are many places in the prophecies that talk about the Sabbath. And Sabbath-keeping is a sign between God and his people. God is very concerned about his Sabbath day and it being kept right. And these prophecies for the end time, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even Nehemiah, and so on, have a lot to say about the Sabbath. Sometimes chapters about it. Remember the eunuchs that uh, keep the Sabbath and so on? I think that's from Jeremiah. But there's an awful lot of... No, there's that Isaiah. Never mind. I told you, I'm losing it. I read something and then I had to go back and read it again and three days later I would have quoted somebody and say, hey, where was that? Terrible. I guess what it does though is it makes me keep my head in the book. If you can't remember it, you've got to keep looking it up. But in any way, it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, verse 19, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates that there should be no burden brought in on the Sabbath, and so on and so forth. And there were merchants and dwellers stayed outside once or twice hoping they could get in. 
And I testified against them and said to them, Why lodge you about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. Sometimes we're kind of willy-nilly about it, aren't we? Nehemiah wasn't. You come back here, I'm going to take you and, and pound your head in. What words are used exactly, but they got the point. <clears throat> and verse 23, In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod of Ammon and Moab, and their children spoke half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them. My margin says reviled. I don't know what he said, reviled, cursed. He didn't use God's name in vain, but he probably let them know where the pair went through the buckwheat. Uh, and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. And made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons or for yourselves. But we in the church today say, oh, well, you want to get married? Well, there's nobody in the church to marry. You know, I guess I'll go ahead and attend and I'll perform the ceremony or whatever. Do you think Nehemiah would have said that? Do you think he'd have backed water like that? Do you think he would have given in to God's explicit instructions like that? How far have we gone from the Word of God? How easily do we depart and allow and make allowance for and our own families and lives, things that God absolutely instructs against, and find some excuse for doing so. I'm not talking about one or two subjects here. I'm talking about a great plethora of things in God's church today that we just sort of ignore or let go by. We need to come back to the same kind of fear, the same kind of understanding, this, Let's go to 2 Corinthians 8. I'm almost done. 2 Corinthians 8. Here's some New Testament instruction on this. This isn't is, this is just some old stuff from thousands of years ago. Well, New Testament instruction is too, 2,000 years. Don't take everything I say literal. 2 Corinthians 11. Well, this at least is a little more modern. Our 2 Corinthians 8. Gets excited here. I can't even talk. Uh, now is this where I want to be? Second Corinthians eight eleven. Did I write down the wrong thing? See, when I can't remember it, I write it down. But if I write down the wrong thing, I'm still not there. That's about the willing mind. That isn't the one I wanted. What I wanted was that one where he says, what carefulness, what zeal that you have. How, how very careful they would be to obey God's law and his ways. That's what Nehemiah was trying to get across. So that's the point I was going to make from that anyway, even though I can't find the scripture. Sometimes Christ said, as he say, or Isaiah said, so he says in verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things, marrying other wives and so on, and outlandish women caused him to sin? Even so great a, his, a historical figure as Solomon, he says, sinned before God. And look what it did to Solomon. It almost destroyed Solomon. Maybe he have, has destroyed Solomon. I don't know. And one of the sons, verse 28, Joiada, the son of 
Eli Ashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Maybe this guy was only about this tall with a fiery temper. I don't know. But this guy disagreed with him, and he literally chased him out of the place. Now, how careful and how zealous, how excited about these things should we be? I think Nehemiah is a good example that it's so easy to tolerate this and let that slide and let something else happen and then change this little thing. And first thing you know, we're weak and willy-nilly and not worth much. Untempered mortar. We have to be tempered. Tempered mortar sets up, and it sets up hard. Untempered mortar cracks and falls off so easily. God wants us to be full of zeal and energy, and he wants us to be so very careful, so very zealous in protecting those things that we have and doing it exactly the way God says to do it. And we've gotten away from that. So think about that principle in all aspects of your life. See why I said last night to pray like you've never prayed before? We are at the edge of the restitution of all things. We are at the point where God is going to take us out of Babylon very soon. The 70 years of our captivity there are almost over. I don't know how long, but it's almost done. And most of the Jews stayed in Babylon. Some filtered out a little later. But only a few had the zeal, the energy, the drive, the desire, the motivation, the commitment to go do something. And the exact same scenario is going to happen in the church of God today. Nine-tenths of the people are probably going to go right on into the tribulation. Yes, they sat at a feast of tabernacles. Yes, they sat in God's church for years and years and years, decades, some of them. And now they're just letting it all fall away from them. We can't afford to do that. We can't afford to let each other do that. That's why Paul says to exhort one another daily. Let's not let each other fall. Let's build the zeal, the fire, the energy to do things the way God wants them done. Yeah, we're getting old, a lot of us. But the fire of God's word can wake us up and give us the energy to do. Herbert Armstrong was writing books when he was older than any of you in this room, probably. Well, I know he was. Where are we? What zeal, what energy do we have? I'm not trying to correct you here. All I'm trying to do is say, look what this man was willing to do. Now, if you see each other doing something wrong, I want you to grab each other by the hair or the beard and jerk yourselves around. <laughs> well, maybe we don't need to go to that extreme in that sense. I mean, they were doing a physical building, and they had these physical people right there in their face, and Nehemiah, if he didn't agree with them, would just grab him by the beard and say, wah, 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 wah. And if the Horonite come in, he would just run him out of the room. Now that's zeal, and that is dedication. And there's a real lesson in here for us about the lackadaisical approach that we've had in God's church the last few years. It's time to wake up! Because it's almost time for dinner. We'll serve at 5.30. I'll see you there. <laughs>